It's lovely to uh, see you here this evening. Here is the outline for you. There are four headings. Uh, the first uh, three you'll notice have A to C, and the fourth one has nothing, really. So it's a very short one. But we're looking at this weekend, uh, the first five chapters of this second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, I'm just opening the batting and closing the bowling on Monday morning. Uh, you'll hear others uh, in between hand on this passage. Now we know more about Paul's relationship to the church at Corinth than we know about his relationship with any of the other churches. It appeared that he wrote at least three letters, uh, possibly four that we know of, but this one that we call 2 Corinthians, the second letter, uh, is really about why did the church he planted come to oppose their apostle? The, the key to the two Corinthians and understanding those two Corinthians is that the church he planted rejected him or appeared to reject him. You would think if you had gone out and preached the gospel, first person to ever preached the gospel in the town of Corinth, in the city of Corinth, started off the church, gathered people who had been converted through your ministry, you would think that amongst, they'd love you amongst all other people, they'd trust you as a Christian minister amongst all other people. But Paul has more struggles with the church at Corinth than any other church. And part of this struggle is their opposition to him as their apostle and their willingness to accept other teachers, even others who would be calling themselves as apostles. Now, we're looking at this part of the New Testament. I'm still in introduction. We're looking at this part in the New Testament when discussing the ministry of the gospel for lots of reasons, but not the least because it gives you a real dose of reality about the nature of the ministry of the gospel. We're talking to you this weekend about the, the rest of your life in gospel ministry. All Christians should be tent makers. Some of you may give up tent making. The concept of a tent making gospel ministry comes from Paul in Corinth. But whatever the ministry that you're engaged in, we're not thinking leaving what you're doing to go into ministry of the gospel in any career fashion as a good career move. We're not talking about a safe, secure occupation with good fringe benefits and a comfortable retirement plan. We're not talking of a prestigious occupation with, with satisfied customers and wide public recognition and acceptance, even admiration. You want that? Be a judge. Safety, security, just, just go and do it. Uh, it's much easier. Just the reverse. This is a work which leads you into conflict and opposition. Disappointment and hurt. Rejection and defeat. Broken relationships and public humiliation. That's what you can expect in Christian ministry. People will reject you for no other reason than your occupation. They will make fun of you and of your family, simply on the basis of your surname. You may see no fruit for your labour. You may be overwhelmed by the amount of work yet to do. And even the people you help may turn against you. 
I mean, to put it simply, every pastor has to learn that sheep bite. Now, that's why we really need to look at 2 Corinthians. For here is Paul dealing with those problems. Here is Paul dealing with a church that he planted by his evangelistic efforts, he worked for in order to reach them with the gospel, but it was a church that seemed to be turning their back on him and accepting other false teachers and apostles who were belittling him and his ministry, questioning his methods and his motives, and worse, belittling the gospel that he preached. It was very painful for Paul to relate to the Corinthians. And unless you understand that that is likely for you in Christian ministry, you've been sold a pup. If you think, oh, well, go into some form of ministry and it'll all work out brilliantly, the world will be converted, I'll be popular, I'll be famous, I'll be... If that is your view of ministry, then we really want to give you a thorough dose of salts this weekend. We really don't want you to go into ministry, frankly. We really need you to be converted. Because being a Christian is about taking up your cross and following Jesus. So it's a different ball game than the one that's in your head. Now, I'm not going to go into the background of the relationship with the Corinthians. It's too big and complex a subject and it goes beyond what we need to talk about. So it will come out through the letter and through the other talks. But out of this relationship, Paul teaches us about the ministry of the gospel why he was doing, what he was doing, what his intentions, what his results, what his expectations are about. And that's what we're listening to. And in this first chapter, out of the relationship problems, he teaches us about the character of God. Three things about it. Firstly, what we know about the character of God is taught to us in the gospel. In the word of God, in the scriptures. For it's in the word of God, in the scriptures, that we come to know God. That's where he reveals himself by speaking to us. And as God speaks, he reveals and teaches us about himself. He teaches us that God is the Father, that God is light in whom there is no darkness, that God is love, that God is spirit, that God is true, that God is a consuming fire. These kinds of and many other concepts and characteristics of God, that comes to us by God revealing himself, not by us thinking it up. It's not idle speculation of humans or deep philosophical speculations either. We haven't discovered these truths about God, but rather the truth that God has revealed to us as he's spoken to us by his prophets and apostles. As I speak to you, you come to know me. As I look at you, sitting quietly and still, I don't know who you are. I can't get to know, I can think about it, I can look at that person in the fifth row and think, oh, that's a person who sits in the fifth row. That's, uh, I mean, well, what more do I know about them? But as I talk, you get to know more and more about me, about my character, about my nature, about my interests, about which football team I follow, or how I've... All kinds of information comes out as I speak. That's even without me talking about myself. Once I start talking about myself as well, then you really come to know who I... God speaks to us in his gospel, 
through the scriptures. And that is the God we know and that is how we know the character of God. But this word of God and knowledge of God is experienced in life. It's often in life's experiences that we learn the lessons that were in the book. It's in the experience of life that we learn the love of God and the faithfulness of God and we find the forgiveness of God. Thus, as we go through sufferings and trials and sickness and persecution, we're not learning truths other than the truths that are in the gospel and the scriptures. We're certainly not learning truths that contradict the gospel and the scriptures, because they're not truth at all. We're learning the truths of the gospel that we've already been taught to us in the scriptures. But we're learning them experientially. We're experiencing the truths that we had already knew, known academically. Unfortunately, we're slow learners. And though the gospel has been speaking these truths for centuries, it's often only when we come into the situations of life that we finally tumble to what was already there in the scriptures, that we'd even known about. That if we'd done an exam, we could have passed the exam and said it. We've even taught it to other people, but we only really learn it for ourselves experientially as we go through life. And knowing God's character helps us in the experiences and situations of life. I don't know what yours are going to be. I've got no idea. In fact, you don't either. That's one of the things about the future. We we don't know it. We don't know where God will be taking us and how he'll get us there. We don't know. But in the situations of life, knowing the character, the mind, the nature of God helps us, guiding us in our decisions, especially when we're going through a rough time, a rough problem, a difficult space of our lives. And it's those situations that the words of God come alive to us as they apply to us. And we understand what it is that God has been saying all along, but we were too deaf to hear. God's word, especially about his character, helps make sense of the situations you're going to confront in the years that lie ahead. It will guide us and how we should act, how we should choose. For knowing God's character will indicate to us what's right and what's wrong what's wise, what's foolish. Now there are two illustrations of all this in 2 Corinthians 1. For in the tough situations of life, Paul learnt about the God of all comfort and the God of faithfulness. He's called the God of all comfort there in verse 3. He's called the God of faithfulness over in verse 18. Tomorrow, Joe's going to tell you about the God of all faithfulness. Tonight, I'm telling you about the God of all comfort. And you'll see under the God of all comfort, I'm going to talk about comfort for a while, then Isaiah 40, and then what's taught in the gospel. So, we turn to the God of all comfort and this word comfort. Now, I'm actually unhappy with the word comfort. I'm afraid the word has shifted in modern English quite some distance. It was translated comfort back in the 16th century and 
uh, into the King James Version, for example, in the early part of the 17th century, that's 1611, but it was still the pre-17th century concept of the word comfort, which meant strengthen, support, console. But in the mid-17th century, it shifted in its meaning so that post-17th century, thank you, it came to mean physical ease and warmth, being cosy, being comfortable. And that shift is actually quite significant because by the time you reach the 21st century, today's meaning of the word connotes physical ease, warmth, freedom for pain. In uh, America, blankets are called comforters. You might call it a duvet or an eiderdown. They call them comforters. That's a comforter. There's, of course, the other kind of comforter, that uh, the, the kind of fleece that you give to a child. That's a comforter. And so he is the god of all comfort. And by this stage, it has almost nothing to do with what Paul was writing about. But that's the meaning of the word today. How modern English translators still continue to use this word shows that they are out of touch with modern English. See, in 1 John, sorry, in John's Gospel, chapters 13 to 18, Jesus is in the upper room on the night of his betrayal and he promises the coming of the Comforter, according to the King James Version of the Bible. The coming of the Holy Spirit. But in this one, the modern translators have, have moved because the word Comforter does mean a dummy or a blanket. And so they've moved in this time, but it's the same Greek word. Uh, this time it's translated in some translators helper, some have advocate, some have counsellor, in the sense of uh, legal counsellor, not in the sense of psychology counsellor. Uh, some don't know what to do with the word, so they just turn the Greek letters into English letters and call it the paraclete, which is not an English word at all. It's just a just turning Greek letters into English letters, which is a silly way of... So we're going to translate the Bible that way. You might as well just learn Greek. Um, and so... But you see, we don't know what to do with this word because the comforter is the... The, the, the paraclete is the person who comes beside you and strengthens you, encourages you, and helps you forward. That's what a... It's the encourager. It's the strengthener that is being spoken of. And in that regard... It, the legal concept of it's not a bad one. Uh, that is, God, if any of you study law, here is just a little, everyone's always got legal jokes, haven't they? And they're all negative, aren't they? Well, let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is your solicitor and the Lord Jesus Christ is your barrister and God is your judge. So, actually, you shouldn't be too anti-lawyers, friends. Uh, we've actually got God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit all actually in the game. Um, but the idea of an advocate, someone who is advocating your cause for you, somebody who is representing you and standing for you, that's a comforter. Here then is the word. But in the New Testament, you can't read the word without, not yet, you can't read the word without thinking of its great usage in the Old Testament. In particular, when, the, when they were slaves in Babylon. For when they were slaves in Babylon, they were there because of their sin. But they are given great news of comfort. Great encouragement comes to them. Great consolation. Because God 
is going to come and rescue them. And this comfort, this was to be rescued out of slavery. It's not just, I'm going to make you feel warm and fuzzy and happy in Babylon. That's not God's comfort to the slaves of Babylon. The comfort of God's slaves in Babylon, I'm going to rescue you out of Babylon. And I'm going to take you across the wilderness again, like Moses took the people of Israel, the slaves of Israel, out of Egypt across the wilderness. And I'm going to meet with you like I met with them back at Mount Sinai. And I'm going to take you into the promised land. And I'm going to give you the land again, full of milk and honey and houses that you haven't built and vineyards that you haven't planted. That's the comfort that is being promised in Isaiah chapter 40 that God will bring this comfort. It's the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of salvation, of rescue. It's the comfort that we have in Christ's death and resurrection for us, whereby our sins are forgiven and we are taken out of hell to become the citizens of heaven. So let's look at Isaiah 40, if you'll turn in your Bibles there to Isaiah 40, for this is one of the great turning points, not just in the book of Isaiah, which it is, it's a great turning point in the, in the book of Isaiah, but even it's a great turning point in the whole Old Testament, as the judgment of God, which so overwhelms the people of Israel because of the continuous sin of the people of Israel, from the great high watermark of Moses out at Mount Sinai when God and the people were married, all the way down, it's just sin, 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 with coming judgment, 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 lying upon sin, until in the end in Babylon, they're just like they were in Egypt before the whole thing started. The whole people were destroyed and decimated, that is, there's only a tenth of them left, and they're slaves again in a foreign city. Isaiah 40 is a great turning point. It comes in three sections of this chapter as I've uh, analysed it there, as you'll see on the outline. The coming salvation of God's people, the in creator's incomparable sovereignty and the enabling power of God. Uh, the first 11 verses refers to the coming of God's salvation because it's promised by his unchangeable word that their sins will be forgiven, their fortunes will be restored, a new exodus is going to happen they're going to meet God and shepherded by God. Are we open? Are we ready? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places are plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord of, the word of, the Lord, of our God will stand forever. 
Go up at a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The chapter is a brilliant, wonderful chapter and I presume that as I'm reading it, if you've known any Bible reading at all, even though you may not know this passage in particular, you will have heard verses coming there of saying, I've heard that, I've heard that. That's where that comes from. This is a chapter you need to know in your Old Testament. Yes, you need to know the whole. But in the beginning, can I encourage you, this is one of those ones to start learning. This is a good one to start studying because this is a great turning point. The promise of the comfort of God to the slaves of Babylon. The promise of a new exodus out in the wilderness, meeting God, the coming of God, bringing forgiveness, mercy, pardon to his people. The coming of God the Almighty, who will shepherd them, who will lead them and care for them, gathering the lambs in his arms. Then the main section of the chapter happens from verses 12 to 26, main in the sense of the longest section of it, in which you learn of the Creator's incomparable sovereignty. There's nothing you can compare to this Creator. There's nothing you can compare to him as king, as sovereign. So, verse 12. He rules over all the creation. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Starts off like the end of the book of Job, doesn't it? With these big rhetorical questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Who is there that can actually do this? And, but the contrast is with the nations. Remember, this is a bunch of slaves. All the nations are ahead of them. All the nations are big and powerful and mighty and wealthy And God saying, compared to them? (laughs) Ridiculous. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? Craftsman casts it and the goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He He is too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. 
Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Ah, the terrible foolishness of human idolatry. You know, when you get a piece of timber that you're going to set up as your idol, make sure it's got a very flat bottom, otherwise it'll rock too much. Why, as you pray to it, it might fall over. You know, and uh, the, the sending up of idolatry in the Old Testament happens place after place because you cannot compare God to any image that you ever make, to any statue you ever make. Whatever statue you make to represent God misrepresents God. For the statue is never alive, God is alive. The statue never knows anything, God knows everything. The statue has no power, God is all-powerful. Everything you know about God is misrepresented by a statue. Whatever it may be, the statue misrepresents the creator in all his power and might. And so in verse 25, you again get the rhetorical question, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number and calling them by their name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The stars of heaven, enormous are the, the, the stars of heaven. But of course they have no power. Astrology's always been stupid. They have no power. They're in their place because God knows them and calls them into their place. The Almighty One. Who are you going to compare to God? The third section of, the book, of this chapter actually comes then to what I suppose in modern lingo we'd call the bottom line. That is the enabling power of God. Verses 1 to 11, you see, the coming salvation of God's people, because God is going to save his people. Who's going to save his people? Well, the God who is incomparably powerful and sovereign over all of creation. Well, then, he will enable his people to be saved. In a sense, this is the point of the chapter. Now, it doesn't yet appear what God will do, but whatever it is, have confidence, because this almighty, powerful God doesn't grow weary. And indeed, he will enable you not to grow weary. I'm picking up verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. 
Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Put yourself into slavery in Babylon. Seventy years they were in slavery in Babylon. Ponder the possibility that you are 70 years old. 65, say. You've been sitting there all this time. You were born in Babylon. Your grandfather died in Babylon. Your parents are aging in Babylon. Here you are in Babylon. And you've got this prophet back there who said, you're going to be taken out by God. And you look at the mighty Babylonian Empire was the greatest empire of the day. The, the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Here was all their might, their power, their greatness. And you've got this word which says one day God's going to come and rescue you. One day God's going to do for you what he did under Moses for, for the Israelites of, of a thousand years before. And you're supposed to wait for the Lord. He will rescue. Wait for the Lord. He is the Almighty One. You think these nations are powerful? You haven't met God. This one is going to come. And he will strengthen you. He will enable you to get back home to Palestine. Back home to the Promised Land. Back home to rebuild. Isaiah 40 is a really important paradigm by which you understand what the New Testament gospel is about. For this is taught to us in the gospel. Um, back to point B now, under the headings. No, keep going backwards. Where are we? Where are we? Keep going back. Yes, somewhere back there. Yep, whoop, back there. You reckon it's point B? Yeah, no, it's point C. I thought there was something wrong in my notes here when I saw B. In point C, that is... You know, the people who don't come to conferences and just get the uh, download the talks later, they miss out on so much, don't they? <laughs> and they hear these things happening, and they what, what, what was happening? What was happening? So every now and then, for no apparent reason, you used to break into laughter, uh, especially if it's got nothing to do with the talk. And it really makes them feel like they've missed out. And they'll turn up next time here rather than just downloading. We love you people who are listening to this wherever you are in the future. Hello, future. Hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> it's just a, that's a, it's an old Flanders and Swan song to actually talk to people and say, you know, this is being recorded for posterity. Hello, posterity. May you enjoy listening to it. Now, this great idea of salvation, of the comfort of God, is taught to us in the Gospel. It's very frequently referred to in the New Testament. It's the passage that starts the ministry of Jesus. For it's the passage about John the Baptist. John the Baptist based his ministry on this, the voice crying in the wilderness. Come to the Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter Three. We will get to 2 Corinthians, friends, don't worry. Matthew chapter 3. All the background you need about this, see? Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. And the Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. The beginning of the new covenant, the beginning of the New Testament is Isaiah 40 coming to fulfillment. If you don't understand Isaiah 40, you haven't understood the beginning of the gospel. If you haven't understood the beginning of the gospel, what hope have you got to get to the end? Isaiah 40 sets the scene. And that verse is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. This is the verse that explains John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the prophet who explains Jesus. If you haven't got John the Baptist right, will you get Jesus right? You can't get John the Baptist right without getting Isaiah 40 right. It's a really important concept. The comfort of God. Comfort. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Your sins are forgiven. And so John says, repent, be baptized, so that your sins will be forgiven. And all the nation flocks out to hear this prophet preaching, the voice in the wilderness declaring the new kingdom coming, and they confess their sins and are baptized and find forgiveness of sins. It sets the expectation for the coming of salvation, for the release from slavery, for the restoration of the people, for the new exodus, for the, when the people would meet God and be shepherded by him. And when you hear that there's a voice in the wilderness crying, prepare to meet your Lord, you've got to be looking over his shoulder and saying, who's coming next? And who is coming next? But God himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel was both unexpected and thoroughly prepared for. It was unexpected because the rulers of this age didn't understand it. If they had understood the plans and purposes of God, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. And they didn't understand it because... As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, no one has instructed God in the wisdom of God. And in order to say that in 1 Corinthians 2, they quote Isaiah 40. Who has ever instructed God and given him his wisdom? Who understands the mind of God? Indeed, it was thoroughly predictable because, as 1 Peter says, the word of God endures forever. God spoke his word hundreds and hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ. But his word came true. God has spoken his word again to us in the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago now. But his word will come true because the one who speaks is the incomparably powerful God. Now this is the God of all comfort that Paul knows about and has to rely upon in his ministry in Corinth. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 about his troubles. Point 3, and Paul's troubles. Because we're getting to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's troubles are reflected here. For example, in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 1, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia, 
Asia means Turkey. For we were, to, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Sometimes some of us reach such a stage that we despair of life itself. There can be a whole range of things that drives us to that position. For, for Paul, it was the troubles that he had in his ministry. Paul was in Ephesus. We don't know what it was that was happening to him in Ephesus. Ephesus is in Turkey, in the Roman province of Asia. He spoke of fighting beasts in Ephesus. Acts records a riotous crowd that he had to face in Ephesus that was baying his, for his blood. We don't know precisely what he's referring to here. Reading 2 Corinthians is like being in a bus and listening to the person in the seat behind you talking on the telephone. You only really hear one side of the kind of conversation and you've got to guess what's happening at the other side. And you don't know the background relationship between the two people. They're on a telephone, so they have some background relationship. It's not like Facebook where you've got none. And so you're listening in to what is being said here about, well, you know the trouble I was in in Asia. Well, no, I don't, but I do know his troubles, and they were everywhere. We know that Paul learnt and taught. Indeed, he said to his associate, Timothy, he said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we know that Paul's life was like that. It was one of consistent danger and pressure. It comes out all over again in 2 Corinthians. As we go through this book, you'll learn to love Paul more and more for the dangers and the difficulties he goes through because so much of his personal life is revealed in it and his feelings come about these things. Come across, for example, to chapter 6 with me. Chapter 6. Verses 4 to 6, chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. But as servants, and I've skipped over some of these other passages that would say the same things because my dear brothers would shoot me because they've got their talks written on those chapters. Thank you, that was one of them. But <laughs> as servants of God, verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, Hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger. Here is the character of his life by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit and genuine love. Paul lives in the ambiguity of a Christian living, under suffering, under persecution, having been beaten and having nothing, being not known and of course at the same time being known being ignored by society and then pilloried by society. Or go across to chapter 11, where he contrasts himself to the false apostles who are leading the Corinthians astray. And see how he describes his life in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labours, far more imprisons, with countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times, being stoned means having rocks thrown at you. It's got nothing to do with drug addiction. 
Uh, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift in sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the wilderness, in danger at sea, danger with false brothers. He was in danger, in case you hadn't got that impression. He was in danger. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This was the life of Paul. A staggering life he was going through. He lived a rough life with much hatred by many people. And here he is back in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. He's saying, we despaired of life. You can understand why he did. Where's the great success in this missionary endeavour? And yet we also read of Paul's release. So in chapter 1, verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. God delivers against all odds. When he knew that all odds are against them, having gone through all the things he's gone through, when you thought, well, this is it, it wasn't because God is it. God rescues. The God we worship is the God who raises the dead, verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. doesn't matter how desperate your situation becomes, the God that we're dealing with is the God who raises the dead. You can't get beyond God. He is the incomparably sovereign ruler of the universe. So, in this experience of life, here is Paul finding release because he worships the God who cannot be defeated. God delivers from all. So we are not to rely on ourselves but rely on him who can raise the dead. The God who rescued the people of Israel from Egypt in the days of Moses. The God who rescued the people of Judah out of the Babylonians. The God who rescued Jesus, raising him from the dead. The God who comforts like that is the God in whom we believe. The God who can never be defeated, whom you can never count out. For just as when you go down for the third count, God steps in and rescues. And so, in this experience of life, we read of Paul's lessons about ministry. They are the lessons of scriptures, the lessons of the gospel. They're, then, they're the lessons he learnt from the word of God, but then he learnt all over again with a new experiential significance. He learned again, it's the character of the God of all comforts to rescue and deliver his people. You see, he learned firstly three lessons. One, that the comfort that he receives is something to give to others. Back in verse 4. The God of all comfort, who comforts us all in, our, in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us in our trouble so that we can comfort others with a, with, who are in trouble 
with the comfort that we ourselves have rescued. You know, the people who are the most generous with their money are the people who are poorest. Over and over again we've seen surveys which showed rich people are the least generous because rich people have the least sympathy for others in trouble. Whereas poor people have great sympathy for others in trouble. They know what trouble means. They know how much a generous hand helps. They have a sense of the value of the help. Why? It's the troubles that we receive that enables us to comfort others. Now, for the sake of making sure people do come next time on Friday night, this has just fallen to my feet. I'm not going to say what it is. <laughs> Why this has just fallen at my feet, I do not know. Whether from my clothes or the ceiling, <laughs> or somehow whilst holding together the lectern or the table, I know not. But it is a very strange phenomenon to have as you talk. <laughs> Suddenly, this fall to your feet. But there it is. <laughs> For future reference. Next time, you should have come. <laughs> the second lesson that he learns is not to rely upon himself, but upon God. You really only learn this in the situation of difficulty. Oh, you learn intellectually. We all know, yes, you rely not on yourself but upon God. But we heard, uh, heard our brother earlier talking about his time as a ministry apprentice and coming to that point at the telephone where he had to, it's not about me. That's classic. In, in Sunday school, I was taught as a child, hands up those who teach us children in Sunday school, blessing and holy upon you. I'm sorry that there are not more of you. It's so important to teach children the word of God. I'm the, I'm the benefit and product of, of good Sunday school education and I believe in it absolutely. Little children, nothing more important. Bring the little children to the Lord Jesus Christ. And very interesting how much Dawkins hates it. The fact that he hates it must tell you something. <laughs> really important that you have Christian children and you teach them the word of God. Anyway, when I was a child, I was taught it's not try but trust. It was a song. I must not trust myself or I will surely fall, but trust in him who died for me and let him do it all. Hands up those who have ever sung that song. Yeah, that's right. You can pick them. They're the ones that you've got to have help to get their hands up in <laughs> these days. I was taught, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Ends up those who heard that one. Hey, a bit more there, isn't it? But it was when I was an adult and had to face the trials of life, when I couldn't see myself to be able to succeed, that I finally understood what the words meant that I had learnt to sing. I finally understood them. I finally experienced them. We keep thinking we can run our own lives. I'm going to make up my decisions as to what I'm going to do. Why? I'll even do it this weekend. Next year I'm going to do that. The year after I'm going to do this. Then I'll do that. Then I'll do this. The 
arrogance of humans knows no end until God brings us to our end and we learn to rely upon God. We keep sick thinking we can successfully and effectively run our lives without God. But it is when we come into the troubles and difficulties that we learn to rely upon God. I get in the motor car, I don't pray that God will get me home, I just turn the ignition on and I start driving. It's as the car starts skidding that I start praying. As I start to lose control, I'm praying. When do we pray? It's always when we're in the difficulties of life that we learn to rely, to trust, to depend upon God. All of our lives are dependent upon God. But I learn to depend upon God in the sufferings that I go through. Paul says through sufferings he goes through. He learns to rely upon God. That's the truth, friends. Those who suffer little rely little. We are so much like the four-year-old who has as their favourite saying of all four-year-olds, I can do it. Puffing Billy is a story taught to them. Some people never get beyond being a four-year-old. So thirdly, Paul learns the lessons of prayer. And not just prayer, but also the fellowship in prayer. Look what he learned there in verse 10. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Yet also, you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on behalf on our behalf, for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. It's not only that I learned to pray myself, it's not only that I learned to rely and trust upon God instead of doing everything by myself, I also learned the value of other people's prayers. God doesn't listen just to my prayers. It's our prayers. When someone comes along and says to you, I'm praying for you about that, there is a value and worth in that that money can't buy. And when we do see release from the situation, then we can join together in thanking God for there's real joy in the fellowship in prayer. Being a Christian, friends, doesn't mean that you're spared for the troubles of life. And being a Christian minister only heightens the troubles. Being a Christian, though, means you have a whole new way of dealing with the troubles of life. A whole new resource package of dealing with the troubles of life by which you can make sense of it, by which you can understand it, from which you can learn through it, from which you can grow through it, from which you can bring praise and glory and thanks to God as you increase in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. That is the God whom we worship, the God of all comfort, the God who rescues the dead, who rescues the perishing, who saves the slaves. That is the God that we serve. But he rescues and saves through the crucifixion. It's not without suffering. It's not without pain. It's not without rejection. It's not without hatred and hurt. You get all that in Christ you get the resurrection in Christ. You don't get the resurrection without the crucifixion. It doesn't go that way. 
you want a resurrection, you've got to have a crucifixion. And so our challenge is about knowing God. That is, we know God as he reveals himself to us in the gospel. As he reveals to himself to us through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the call to turn back to him, to take up our cross, follow him. In proclaiming him to the ends of the earth and bringing people into his kingdom and salvation. That is how we know God. It's all through the gospel, through this wonderful work of Christ on the cross for us. That's how we know God. But while we know it in our minds and our hearts and while we're committed to it in our beliefs, it's as we go through life experiencing the persecutions and the sufferings for declaring it to others, as we go through life being crucified with Christ, by the experience of proclaiming the cross that we actually come to understand it. We come to it, to know it at experiential levels. And so that's what Paul is about in 2 Corinthians. He gave his life for this church that they may be saved, that this, this bride might come into being in Corinth. He, he gave himself to it. And they seem to hate him and reject him and despise him and go off with other teachers. The level of disappointment would be massive. It is massive. Never a person leaves church to join another church without me feeling hurt. Even when they leave for the best of all possible reasons. Now that's a deep sinfulness in my heart. But can I get rid of it? I don't know any other pastor who can, so why should I be able to? It always hurts your pastor when you leave your church to join another one, especially because you're saying it's better. It always does. What do you do when the whole church votes against you? The pain, the suffering of the pastoral ministry can be into sheep bite. That's what we're inviting you into. Not, not something nice and easy, comfortable, secure. If you want that, there's a hundred different careers you can find. That, that's not what we're talking about. It's, it's anything but that. We're talking about the work of the cross here. And it's very, very different. But as you go through this, you learn the God of all comfort. For our God is not a torturer. Our God is a saviour. And he rescues us. He restores us. He enables us. Those who wait on the Lord will not grow weary. We will not faint. He enables us to keep going year after year, decade after decade. He strengthens us to keep doing it. And we experience that doing it more and more, relying upon him in the fellowship of the prayers of his people and can give thanks to God. The recent times I've come to see the generation of my teachers die. They're all dying on me now. 
nearly all the ones who taught me when I was your age, they're now dying. And it is wonderful to contemplate their lives and to give thanks to God for great men, wonderful men, great men, who stood the test of faith through opposition and difficulty for year after year. And in their 90s, some of them have finally been called home. One of them was writing tracts and sending them to me, new ways to explain the gospel in his late 80s, early 90s. Another one wrote a sermon in his retirement every week, even when he wasn't preaching. He would still, every week, write his sermon as the opportunity may come to him. Another one in his hospital bed, as my son went around to visit him, close to his death, and uh, he challenged my son not to lose faith in the word of God. These men continued 60, 70 years in Christian ministry, never growing weary right to the end because our God is the God of all comfort. They didn't leave comfortably. That, that's not the comfort. They lived as saved, rescued men, encouraged, strengthened to live in the context of conflict that gospel ministry brings upon you. May you one day reach that stage at the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort. We thank you that you are the one who enables, who strengthens, that we may face the difficulties, the toils, the troubles, the problems of life. We thank you for the great example of the Apostle Paul and the way in which you enabled him to keep going under such incredible privations and oppositions, persecutions, to press on year after year, proclaiming your gospel, even amongst churches that seemed to turn their back, even when fellow workers like Demas left. We thank you, Father, for Paul's continued strength to continue ministering your word for the salvation not only of his own generation but for many of us who come to faith through reading his writings that you inspired. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to so know you and your ways and your gospel that as we put our hands to the plough we may not look back at the attractions of this world. We may not look back at Sodom or Gomorrah, but as we put our hands to the plough, Father, we may look forward to the cross, knowing that we are to take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus, because we are doing so under the God of resurrection, the God who saves, the God of all comfort, the God who is mighty to save 52 weeks of the year and who can rescue us from any and every situation and will rescue us on that last day when we come before you. So, Father, help us to set our eyes firmly ahead in the face of the temptations, not naively, not 
ignorantly of the problems and difficulties that we will face, but confidently, with a confidence that is in you, not in ourselves. Prayerfully, trusting and relying upon you and sharing in the fellowship of prayer so that great thanks can be given to you for our lives lived under your sovereignty. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.